These days, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I was raised Catholic. I attended Catholic schools, and yeah, I wore the knee-length plaid skirt with a white blouse and sensible shoes. After a stint at the local community college, I chose to attend a Catholic university for my undergrad degree. But I've not been an active churchgoer in decades, and sometimes I miss it. The ritual, the comfort I receive from attending Mass. But then I hear a story like this one, and I think, no, I'm good where I am. Today's story takes place in Wisconsin, not too far from the Wisconsin-Minnesota border. This was a shocking crime. You know, they say it shook the community. Well, this case really did shake the community because the crime was so senseless and so random. It struck fear in the hearts of those who knew the two well-liked victims. These were decent men living ordinary lives. Come with me to the winter of 2002, when a baffling double murder at a funeral home points to one seemingly unlikely suspect. Ryan Erickson was born in January of 1973, one of three children born to parents Dennis and Mary Roth Erickson. Dennis was a Vietnam veteran, and he worked as a prison guard. His struggles with alcoholism made the home a stressful place for Ryan and his two siblings, brother Travis and sister Sonia. The family of five settled in Campbellsport, Wisconsin, which is located north of Milwaukee and south of Lake Winnebago. Word is that Ryan was a funny and charming child, but he also had a mean streak. This resulted in cruelty to animals, and yes, we're going to talk about some animal cruelty, not too much, and some sexual abuse, so just listeners, be warned. Ryan was known to flood weasel holes with water and then club the weasels as they tried to escape drowning. He was also known to shoot guns at neighborhood cats. And we know that violence toward animals is a concerning trait, especially in a child. As a teenager, he attended Campbellsport High School, and during his junior year, his father received a transfer. Rather than move with his family, he decided to stay with a local parish priest so he could finish school with his friends. Ryan spent more than a year living with the priest, and it was during this time that Ryan became particularly religious and expressed an interest in joining the seminary. The summer after high school, he was at a campground near Eagle River, Wisconsin. While staying at the campground, he ran around with other teenagers, but he paid particular attention to one 14-year-old boy. One night, he invited the boy back to his place and told him ghost stories. When the youth became frightened, Ryan started touching him to soothe him, but these touches became inappropriate. Ryan then offered the boy oral sex, which was refused. The boy told his mother what happened with Ryan, and she notified the police. Unfortunately, as so often happens in these cases, it became he said, he said, and the district attorney's office felt the boy, who was depressed after the assault and seeking counseling, was not a good witness. With Ryan now attending seminary, it seemed best not to prosecute what looked like an unwinnable case. Investigator Albert L. Thompson of the Vilas County, Wisconsin District Attorney's Office, he was key to charges not being filed. And now is a good time to bring up that this is not the first time that Ryan was accused of inappropriate sexual behavior with the younger boy. When he was 17, he allegedly assaulted one of the kids on his wrestling squad, a boy who was only 14. 
Ryan would admit this incident during one of his interviews at the seminary, and it was shrugged off as a normal part of teenage sexual experimentation and curiosity. In July of 1992, a Dr. Anthony Malozzi interviewed and assessed Ryan prior to his starting the seminary. This assessment took place just a few weeks after the Eagle River incident. Malozzi described Ryan as problem-free, psychologically stable, and said that he would make a good priest. Well, okay then. While at seminary, his time was not trouble-free. A fellow student complained that he woke up to find Ryan in his bed. The rector of the seminary, a Reverend Philip Rask, went to the diocese about the incident, and this was under the superior diocese. If you aren't Catholic or if you aren't familiar with Catholic leadership, the diocese are regions led by a bishop who is responsible for certain geographic areas. For example, there are seven dioceses in Michigan. The largest of these is the Archdiocese of Detroit, which currently serves about 1.3 million Catholics in southeastern Michigan that attend 218 parishes. The setting of this week's case, the Superior Diocese, has about 100 parishes in northern Wisconsin, and these parishes are served by more than 40 priests. Anyway, this rector, who is basically the dean of the seminary, he was concerned about Ryan's impulsive behavior, his drinking, and eventually his extremism. His concerns were not enough to prevent Ryan Erickson from being ordained in June of 2000 at St. Anne's Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. And while at St. Anne's, Father Erickson met a young teenager, an altar boy named Thomas Smith, and make a note of his name because you will hear it again. After ordination, Father Ryan was sent to St. Patrick's Church in Hudson, Wisconsin, a community just 20 miles from St. Paul, Minnesota. Father Ryan spoke to his parishioners of the childhood ideals he was raised with, and he promised he would bring those ideals to the church. A fellow priest described him as conservative, headstrong, and rigid. Father Ryan often spoke of sexual sins, focusing on contraception, abortion, and masturbation. He preferred to say Mass in Latin and dress in a cassock instead of the black pants, black shirt, and clerical collar, most often associated with those in the priesthood. At St. Patrick's, Father Ryan had a pulpit for his beliefs, and he decided to go after what he called casual Catholics. You know, the ones who showed up for church on the weekends but weren't living a truly Catholic life in his eyes. Perhaps they used birth control, or they didn't come to confession often enough. Or maybe they came to church only sporadically instead of each week, or they skipped religious education for their children. So many options for him to concern himself with. Father Ryan pressed his parishioners to do better. And when it came to spending time with his flock, he preferred hanging around large Catholic families, ones with many children. He was well-liked by much of the parish and received many gifts, including a forty-five caliber handgun, which he often wore beneath his cassock, even when saying Mass. Father Ryan was known to take boys fishing, and when they caught something and hauled it ashore, Ryan would shoot the fish with his handgun, everyone delighting in how the animal exploded. In another incident, he put firecrackers in the mouths of fish so they would explode violently. And listeners, you and I know that cruelty to animals is a sign of something seriously wrong with the abuser. And how this behavior was tolerated? I just don't understand. So, back to St. Patrick's. 
The parish had both a church and a school, and Father Ryan was placed in charge of sex education at the parish school. During his lessons, he railed against masturbation and abortion, and he encouraged modesty. In an email to the parish unrelated to his teachings at the school, he chastised those who dressed immodestly. Did they want someone to leave church and masturbate while thinking about them in their skimpy outfits? I find this really inappropriate stuff for a priest to be putting out there, but Father Ryan had no qualms about saying what he was thinking, and there were many members of the parish who just loved that he was direct with parishioners. And then on the weekends, they loved how he preached the Word of God. And if you're thinking this guy is really out there, we are not done yet. In addition to his fixation on what he called sexual sins and his love of guns, he was known to weep during Mass. While lifting the host, tears would pour from his eyes because he was so overcome with emotion. That's not all, though. Father Ryan found a Monsignor's outfit and started wearing that around town, even though he was not elevated to that level. He was still a new priest. When the primary parish priest became ill, Father Ryan excitedly speculated that he would soon be in charge of the parish all by himself. And now, there are people who speculate that the illness suffered by Father Slazinski was mysterious and could have possibly been the result of malfeasance on the part of Father Ryan, but I don't think that was ever proved. Slazinski, who's about 70 years old, finds himself in and out of a local hospital with various ailments. Now, Thomas Smith, remember him, our altar boy? He again crossed paths with Father Ryan, and Father Ryan, well, he remembered Thomas Smith right away. The two spent a few minutes catching up, and Father Ryan learned that Thomas had gotten into some trouble and needed to do community service. Father Ryan suggested he work at the parish to earn those community service hours, and the adult priest and teenage boy found themselves spending a lot of time alone. While performing community service, Smith would end up drinking with Father Ryan. Remember earlier in the episode, we talked about how Father Ryan had trouble with impulse control and liked to drink? This priest, this man of the cloth, found himself alone with an underage teen boy and added alcohol to the mixture. First, there were cold beers, and then the priest would bring out the Jägermeister for shots and drinking games. Sometimes Smith would drink so much that he'd end up vomiting. Then he would go to the shower to clean himself up. Father Ryan would supervise this activity from the doorway. Then Smith would crawl into bed and Father Ryan would join him. While Smith was not aware of any intercourse taking place, he admits that he was passed out drunk and didn't know what happened while he slept off the effects of all that drinking. When their visits concluded, Smith would return to his home and his girlfriend and when he did, he found their relationship and intimacy painful, so he turned to more drinking to quell the difficult feelings that threatened to overwhelm him. One of Smith's friends, a boy named Ed Jones, he became concerned about the mood swings and erratic behavior that Smith demonstrated. Ed talked to his friend, but Thomas couldn't explain or articulate what he was going through, and the abuse lasted for months. Jones sometimes joined Smith at the rectory. Both boys attended a local Catholic high school. What stuck out to Jones was how many guns Father Ryan had. He noted that during one visit, Father Ryan took a BB gun and pointed it out the window, 
pretending to shoot at people he didn't like. It wasn't until a year or so later when the boy started college and Smith had a psychology class that he learned about grooming and abuse. He went to the police with his information, but tragically, the complaint was misfiled. They put it under serving minors alcohol instead of applying children with alcohol for the purposes of sexual assault, and the report sat in a file cabinet for months instead of being followed up on. Meanwhile, back at the parish, Thomas Smith isn't the only teenage boy that Father Ryan has an eye on. Other parents are concerned about how much time and attention Father is giving to their boys. He's still doing the fishing trips and offering tutoring to boys in need of guidance and support. Enter Dan O'Connell. O'Connell ran the local funeral home. He and his wife Jenny had two children, Kyle and Caitlin. O'Connell was one of the parishioners who was not enamored with Father Ryan, and he was, in fact, quite concerned about the attention the young priest paid to boys in the parish. O'Connell knew Father Ryan not just from attending his church, but as the local funeral director, they spent time together at many a farewell for parishioners and their loved ones. On the night of February 4, 2002, Father Ryan and Dan O'Connell had an argument, a big argument. The topics of discussion were not made public, but it's probably not too hard to guess what O'Connell, the father of a 12-year-old boy, would be upset or concerned about. On the morning of February 5th, O'Connell had a meeting in the morning, and after the meeting, he stopped at Walmart where he ran into Mary Pagel. Mary Pagel is a bus driver who transported kids for St. Patrick's Parish School. He asked Mary about Father Ryan. Had she ever seen him behave inappropriately with boys? No, she hadn't. Did he pay a lot of attention to girls in the parish? No, Mary admitted. He seemed mostly focused on the boys. O'Connell told her his concerns and that he would be meeting with Erickson and Pegel, who, as a bus driver, is a mandatory reporter of child abuse. Pegel insisted that he go to the police instead of meeting with Erickson directly. O'Connell told her, look, I will handle this. And later that morning, after her meeting with O'Connell, Pegel spotted Father Erickson, not dressed in his usual cassock, but wearing street clothes as he left the rectory. It was just after 1 p.m. that Dan O'Connell was seated at his desk in the funeral home, a place that Father Ryan knew well since he often attended memorials there in support of parish families. While sitting at his desk, someone walked in and shot Dan in the head at close range. Hearing the report, Dan's intern, a 22-year-old named James Ellison, entered the office, only to be shot once in the head. The shooter fled the building. The bodies of the men lay undisturbed as they were the only employees at the funeral home when the shooting happened. Across the street from the parish rectory, parishioner Mary Caruso lived with her family. The Caruso home was a regular hangout for Father Ryan. He would sometimes retreat to her house where he would spend quiet afternoons napping on her sofa, avoiding the phones and noise at the rectory. When she came home at 1.30, she spotted Father Ryan, dressed in street clothes, dozing on the sofa in his regular spot. And I want to note here that according to Google Maps, the funeral home is located 1.1 miles from the rectory, and Mary Caruso's home 
Her house was right across the street from the rectory, so they were very close together. At 1.40 p.m., the St. Croix County Medical Examiner entered the funeral home. He was there to sign death certificates when he found the bodies of O'Connell and Ellison. He called the police, who hurried to the scene. A double homicide was unheard of for the community. A double homicide in the middle of the work week at a well-respected local business? The news was devastating. Even with the medical examiner being the first to discover the crime scene, this won't be an easy case to solve. Police canvassed the area, and a witness came forward to say that they saw a man near the funeral home about 1.15 that afternoon. The man was dressed in a light-colored t-shirt, blue pants, and a baseball cap. It's February, so the lack of appropriate winter wear stood out. Another witness says they saw a white or light-colored four-door car near the scene, but they can't provide more specific details. When the parish receives a call for a priest at 3 o'clock to go to the funeral home, Father Ryan can't be located, so Father DeBruzzi is dispatched. That afternoon, Father Ryan appears at Carmel of the Sacred Heart Monastery, which is inhabited by sisters, and he tells the nuns that Dan and his assistant were murdered. He says that he tried to enter the funeral home to anoint the bodies, but police turned him away. Interestingly, the identities of those killed is not made public until hours after Father Ryan spoke to the sisters. When Father Ryan leads the Mass at St. Patrick's that evening, he is both tearful and agitated. February 5th is the feast day of St. Agatha. She is the patron saint of breast cancer patients, nursing mothers, and rape victims. Father Ryan is tearful as he speaks of her grace. After the Mass, Father makes a brief appearance at the O'Connell home to pray with the newly widowed Jenny O'Connell, but he doesn't say much and he doesn't stay long. And listeners, I want to note here that this visit from Father Erickson is the only time that any representative from the Catholic Church ever reaches out or makes any contact with members of the O'Connell or Ellison families after the murders. On Saturday, February 9th, 2002, Father Ryan is one of the priests who leads a funeral mass for Dan O'Connell. A couple of weeks after the murders, Father Ryan trades his silver Buick for a larger, black, four-door Lincoln, similar to what he and Dan would ride in when attending funerals. It will take a few months, but with his drinking and his tears and his rails against masturbation, the parish has had enough of Father Ryan Erickson, and in September, he is transferred to the assistant pastor position at Our Lady of Sorrows in Lady Smith, Wisconsin. Lady Smith is a more rural community located about 100 miles northeast of Hudson. And remember Father Zelinsky, the one who was so sick? He started feeling better within weeks of Erickson's transfer and no longer was in need of inpatient care at the local hospital. At his new location, it didn't take long for Erickson to make a strong impression. One parishioner at Our Lady of Sorrow said that Father Ryan oozed holiness, and it was infectious. Much like the initial reception in Hudson, many parishioners were happy to have him there. It was in April of 2004 that someone finally interviewed Thomas Smith about his allegations against Father Ryan. Smith had a lot to say to investigators, and he was still clearly impacted by years of repeated manipulation and abuse. Also, in April of 2004, the baffling murder at the funeral home was featured on America's Most Wanted.
In August of 2004, Father Ryan is transferred again, this time to a small parish in Hurley, a community in northern Wisconsin right along the Michigan-Wisconsin border. He is demanding of his parishioners and the community. Like his arrival at previous parishes, they are taken with him, and within weeks, attendance at Sunday service increases by nearly 50%. Father Ryan is still dressed in his cassock, and he is still wearing a gun most of the time. While in Hurley, he adopted a dog, which he named Beast. He beat the dog regularly and took up smoking cigars. The dog's ears were soon dotted with cigar-shaped burn marks, and again, how does no one notice this? How do people just let this behavior slide? In November of 2004, just as he settled in at the new parish, two detectives come calling on Erickson. They said they're there to talk about Thomas Smith and his abuse allegations. During the interview, detectives casually turned the conversation to the double murder. Erickson told detectives that O'Connell was fooling around with the mafia, and that's probably what led to the murder. When they ask Father Ryan about how the murders took place, he tells them that Dan was at his desk and James near the door. Then Father Ryan backtracks. He says to the detectives that he thinks that's what he heard on television news reports. He's really not sure how the murders happened. But listeners, the placement of the men's bodies was never made public. Father Ryan knowing exact positions of the two men is concerning. Dan was at his desk and James was near the door. You can almost see the detectives exchanging a knowing look. They tell him that that information was never made public, so Father names another detective and said that's where the information originated. The detective confided in him. When they go back and talk to that detective, he insists that he never told anyone, especially not Father Ryan, any details about the case. So the two detectives return to Hurley to speak with him again, and they challenge him on the information about the crime scene. This time, Erickson blames a beat cop for sharing the details, but the investigators aren't buying it. They want to know how Erickson knows about the crime scene, and they don't think it was a leak from inside the department. They ask Erickson to take a lie detector test, and he says that he'll think about it. After the detectives leave, Erickson goes to the deacon's wife. He tells her that he cannot go to prison. He knows what happens in prison, especially to priests and he just cannot consider that he could possibly be sent to prison. But Erickson agrees to take the polygraph, and it's scheduled for December 14th, but on the 13th, he calls to cancel. He says his attorney told him not to do it. After canceling the polygraph, Erickson starts making phone calls. He's calling his friends back in Hudson, trying to shore up his alibi for the afternoon of the murders. On December 15, 2004, police execute a search warrant on Father Ryan's living quarters. They took his computer where they found his last will and testament. It's interesting to note that he wrote his will the day after his first interview with police, and he updated his will the day after his second interview with the police. Investigators also find child pornography on the computer, dozens of images of teen boys in compromising positions. The images are buried in a file and labeled Holy Mass Prayers. Because investigators are concerned that Father Erickson could be a suicide risk, with his permission, they confiscate all of his weapons. His many handguns were relocated and locked away. 
On December 18, 2004, Father Erickson was visited by two friends, Richard Reams and Tom Burns. Father Ryan led the four o'clock mass and then went to dinner with his friends. After dinner, they came back to the rectory and watched a couple of old movies. The next morning, Reams and Erickson are up and about at 7 a.m. Reams is planning to head home and Erickson is getting ready to lead mass. As Reams went outside to his truck, he saw a body hanging. He ran to the maintenance man and told him, Father Erickson hung himself. A maintenance man shrugged it off as a prank. Erickson was known to play pranks on his co-workers at the parish, but when Reams returned to his truck, he realized it was no prank. Father Erickson had hung himself. Inside the rectory, they call police and an ambulance. On a table, they found three letters and the ring that Erickson often wore. In one note, he wrote about the murders. This murder investigation is a turkey shoot. They want to hang it on someone, so use character assassination to achieve their goal. I did not murder anyone. I did not kill Dan or James. After Erickson's death, at the request of the O'Connell family, the prosecutor wanted to have a John Doe hearing and clear this case from their books once and for all. But they were surprised to learn that many witnesses were not going to cooperate with the investigation. It seemed they felt Erickson was railroaded by overzealous investigators. They believed the police were to blame for his death, and they wanted no part in their investigation since he'd completed suicide. Families refused to consider the idea that Father Erickson could have had an inappropriate relationship with their boys, shutting down inquiries from police about that aspect of the investigation. Some told investigators that if they wanted information out of them, they needed to come back with a subpoena. So, investigators put the best case possible together under the circumstances, and St. Croix District Attorney Eric Johnson presented the evidence to Judge Eric Lindell on October 3, 2005. Much of the information you've heard today was shared at that hearing. There was no jury, just a judge and more than a dozen witnesses. At the end of the hearing, Judge Lundell agreed that after hearing all of the evidence, I find and conclude that Ryan Erickson probably committed these crimes in question. On a scale of 1 to 10, as far as strength of evidence, I would consider this 10. It is a very strong case for circumstantial evidence. The judge's ruling satisfied two grieving families who felt they finally had long-awaited answers in the senseless murder of their loved one. After the ruling, both the Ellison and O'Connell families sued the archdiocese hoping for change within the organization, but the suits were thrown out in court. Then they asked to meet with the bishop to discuss what happened to their loved ones, and the best the church could do was a meeting with the bishop's assistant. The bishop is, after all, a very busy man. No one from the church met with the families after the murders, not even Father Peter Slazinski, who suffered so many medical issues after Father Erickson's arrival at the parish. When Father Erickson transferred out of Hudson, Father Slazinski recovered from his mysterious ailments and did not pass away until 2008. Whatever closure the families were hoping to get from the church, they still have not received it. This week's episode was researched by Haley Gray. Audio editing by Gray Multimedia. If you are interested in more information and more details on the case, I suggest you read the case study done by Leon J. Podles. This case was also featured in an episode of the show Killer Clergy. 
I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.